Today's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, uh, pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God the Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's Word. Thanks, Brian, for reading the scripture. You're one of the better-looking Brians in the church. Just saying. Uh, So I'm wrapping up here this uh, three-part series here on, uh, I think, what Paul is giving to us, his idea of what contentment ought to look like what it comes from, um, what it means to be happy and satisfied. And um, just kind of wrapping up, there's so much more we could say. You know, every time you look at Paul's letters and read his books or his uh, his letters in the Bible, it's just packed. I mean, there's just a lot of things, word for word. It's just so many things to learn from. But uh, we are moving forward with this now and uh, looking forward to Thanksgiving. And so just kind of trying to wrap it up. And what I'm going to say today is probably nothing new. You, if you've been going to church, if you, if you are a Christian, uh, you probably already know this, at least in your head. It's, it's not going to be anything new. So uh, I, I'm just going to reemphasize it because I think this is what Paul, one of his definitions of contentment really comes to play. Many people, when we think about contentment, right, or just, even just being happy, we, we normally assume that it just means, at least, the very least, absence of problems. Right? If I just didn't have any problems, I'd be very happy, completely happy. But if that's what we want to define contentment or being happy is, then you and I both know that no one will ever have a lasting kind of contentment because no one can be completely free from, from problems, right? And what we see here in Paul is he seems to tell us, as we learned last week, that real deep contentment is the ability to find or persevere or to endure a present circumstance and still be content. We find in our passage, and not just in our passage, but the whole chapter, Paul seems to want to tell the church in Philippi he is, in a sense, in a way, satisfied. If you remember in verse 4, this is the God who says to us, rejoice all the time. This is the man who, in verse 6 of this chapter, tells us, Don't worry, don't be anxious about anything. 
This is in verse 7 of this chapter, the same guy who introduces us to the peace of God. The peace of God. Someone who knows how to rejoice in every situation. Someone who's free from anxiety and worry. Someone whose heart is guarded by the peace of God because of the God of peace. And here in our particular passage just read for us, the same Paul tells us that he's also learned to be content. He's learned to be content. And the question we've been looking at is how? What does that look like for Paul? How is that possible that if he can learn contentment in any situation, so can we? Or can we? And I think Paul's saying we can. And he gives us the resources for why he believes this. So we've been looking at Paul's contentment. Let me just summarize the past two sermons here in one sentence or two, okay? First, Paul's contentment, we said, was not any kind of contentment, satisfaction or happiness, but it was a confidence. It was a contentment based on the confidence of God's providence. Remember what providence is? It's the belief that God is actually working in everything that we do, in our everyday life, not just in the miracles, not just in the one spectacular moment, but we have a God who is involved in the everyday situations of our lives. He trusted in God's providence, and he found contentment. Last week, we looked at circumstances. Paul's contentment uh, was independent of his circumstances, right? Independent of his circumstances. It was, we find this in verse 12, that whether he had a lot or whether he had a little, whether he was hungry or whether he was filled, whether he was supplied or whether he was in need, he was the same. He found contentment above those circumstances. And so his circumstance did not dictate his contentment. His contentment uh, was not circumstantial, okay? Here's the third point that we're looking at today. Not only is Paul's contentment a belief and trust in God's providence, not only is it independent of his immediate circumstances, his situation, or what's going around him, but we find this in verse 13. Paul says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a famous verse, right? The third thing about Paul's contentment is this. His strength to be content comes from a divine source, namely by valuing the worth of Jesus Christ and having him. Okay? Simple idea that many of us know, but it's a big part of what he's talking about. And because Paul has him, this person, Jesus Christ, he says, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we need to be very careful with this verse because you've heard this verse somewhere, I'm sure, someplace. And oftentimes when you look at this verse, it's a confidence-boosting verse. Hey, I can do anything. That's what he's saying. I can do anything through him who strengthens me. I want you to know something about this verse, though. In the Greek, the original language here, the way it's written is this. When the Greeks wanted to emphasize something or a point or a position, they used the words first, literally, okay? So literally, if you were to read this in the Greek, the first words are all things, all things. So you read this literally like this. All things I can do through him. That's the emphasis here in verse 13. So what does Paul mean when he says, I can do everything 
Everything I can do through him. What does that mean? And we need to be clear. Paul is not saying here in this verse that you and I can do anything we want to as long as we set our mind to it, right? Uh, You might say that, others might say that, but this is not what verse 13 is talking about. No matter how hard I set my mind to be able to dunk a basketball, I know for a fact, no matter how hard I do this, I'm never going to do it. No matter how much I set my mind to running a mile under four minutes, no matter how hard I do this, I know I won't be able to do it. So what does Paul mean when he says, everything I can do through him who strengthens me? He's not saying I could go without food like forever. He's not saying I could live without water forever. There's a limit. What is he talking about? And the answer is, you have to look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 13, all things I can do, what? What things are he talking about? Verse 11 to 12, he's talking about his circumstances. He's talking about being filled or going hungry. He's talking about having a lot or having very little and suffering need. He could have said, you know, I can, you know, all things I could do, but what he really means is this. All of those circumstances, in every situation, I can do this. That's what he's saying. Now, what can he do? The word do here, those two little letters here in our English language, is a lot bigger in the Greek. It literally means dynamite, dunamis, power. It means, the word do here means to be strong, to have strength. And so this verse 13 is literally saying this. He's saying, in everything, in all things, I have the strength, the power to endure, to go through anything. He's not saying, anything I want to do, I can do it as long as I put my mind to it. He's saying, in anything, I have the power, the strength, the dunamis or the dynamite to go through anything. That's what he's talking about. Anything, all deprivations, all difficulties, all times of prosperity even, he can be content. Right? Now, where does he get that power from? Where does he get this strength from? And in verse 13, he says this, through him, I can, all things I can do, through all things I can endure, through him who strengthens me. Now, what does he mean by that? Who is him? It's Jesus Christ. But the real hard part here is this. What does it mean through? Through him. That's a conjunction, right? Through him. What does that mean exactly? And scholars are divided on this, what that exactly means. Some translate the word through rather than through. They say, I can do all things from him, meaning that God's work in the strength of his spirit comes into our lives and produces a kind of strength and contentment to endure all things. Possible. Other scholars translate the word through as not through, but for. So he says, I can do all things for him who strengthens me. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8, in the same letter, I've suffered everything and count everything as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. So for Jesus, I can endure all things. Okay? It's possible. But I think the most important, probably the most accurate, in my opinion, of translating the word through him is this. It's contentment with, with him. All things I can do. I have the power and strength to endure and go through all things, to be content. Why? With him 
who strengthens me. This, I think, is confirmed from chapter 3, verse 8. He, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash in order that I might gain Christ. You've heard those words before. Paul says in verse 13, in any situation, I've got the power, the strength, the dynamite to endure, to find contentment with him because he possesses this Christ. And because he knew he has this person in his life, it brought him a kind of contentment that was independent, therefore, of his immediate situation, no matter what it was. Paul was content to just be with Jesus, to have Christ. I know this sounds kind of uh, basic, right? I think we all kind of know this is maybe how it should be, but you've got to understand what Paul's saying. He says, you won't understand what Paul means until you understand what he means when he says in verse 8 of chapter 3, the surpassing worth the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've counted everything else as rubbish by comparison. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because sometimes we forget. We always forget things. Being Christian does not mean just believing in the truth. It also means treasuring, treasuring the truth. Becoming a Christian Saying, I want to believe in Jesus Christ isn't just a choice, but also when you make the choice, you, you cherish the choice. Living the Christian life is not just deciding one day, I'm going to commit to God. It's also you, you delight in the decision. You treasure your truth. You, you cherish the choice you've made. You, you delight in your decision. This isn't so hard for us to understand because you know what it's like. You know what you feel like when you make a choice, when you make a decision to do something, uh, when you believe in something that you really think is true. You know what that feels like. No one has to tell you what it's like to to follow or, or to buy into something because you wholly jump in because you know it's that good. You don't go to your favorite restaurant and eat your favorite food and say, I made a choice for this food. But you cherish it. You delight. You treasure it. That time, that moment, that thing, that person. Paul's not saying anything different. Now let's be clear. Paul here is not saying everything in the world is bad. And Jesus is the only good. Okay? He's not. I think he's the opposite. I think he's saying there is a lot of good things that we enjoy. There are a lot of good things we delight in and, and make a choice to, to do or to have or to pursue. There's even great things in the world. I think that's what Paul's trying to say. But the point here is, by comparison, for Paul, having Jesus is better. It's as if he, he takes out a scale and whatever he loves and whatever he is enjoying, whatever he wants in life, he's weighing it on the scale. And then the other side, 
He has Jesus, and he's weighing the pros and cons. He's doing the cost and benefit analysis, and he's saying, this side, Christ always weighs it down. Right? For him, it's like when we go shopping for something, food, clothes, whatever it is, you see something nice, you look at it, what do you do? You check the price tag. How much is that? Is it worth it? And the thing is, people can disagree on, on whether it's worth it or not, depending on how much it is, right? You might think something is worth it to spend this much amount of time or money or effort to have this, but others might say the very opposite. But the point is, sometimes we value or overvalue things, and sometimes we undervalue things. That what should be valuable to us, sometimes we undervalue it. What should be less valuable to us, we overvalue it and we pursue it with everything we have. But sometimes we're unbalanced. And when it comes to our time and our effort, our our money, our concerns, you know, of course, the important basics, our children, our marriage, maybe our work, our spouses, those are very important things, and it may be impossible to overvalue those things, right? It's worth it. But the question that I want to ask you today, where is God on your spectrum of values? Honestly speaking, where is Jesus in the spectrum of what you say is worth it? Where is the church right now for you? Because from where I'm standing, the level of attendance on Sunday worship is atrocious. It's atrocious. I can't go because my kid. I can't go because my work. I can't go because my vacation. I can't be there because of this and this. It almost sounds to me, it almost sounds to me that you only come to church when you've got nothing else more worth it to do. Where is it? You will not understand what Paul is talking about practically until you understand where he gets his contentment. And his contentment is simply having this Jesus by comparison, as good as things are, is rubbish. See, the problem is this. I'm not saying we we care less about our kids or we care less about our work or less about our family, even even our leisure. Go for it all. I'm not saying that. The problem is not that we just overvalue some things here in the world. It's just the problem is we forget or maybe we just don't know, but we constantly seem to undervalue Jesus by comparison. It's not that I'm telling you to love less your kids or love less your work or family or leisure or overvalue them. The problem, I think, is we just undervalue what's going on in the church and what needs to happen and who Jesus is by comparison. Now, there are some of us here who are somewhat rather young into the faith, maybe new, maybe you're thinking about it, and, or maybe it's, you've been a, while, a Christian for a while, and what Paul is saying, maybe what I'm saying, it sounds a little fanatical. 
right? It's a little fanatical. Isn't this a little weird? A bit going overboard, like Jesus is everything and everything else is rubbish. I mean, isn't he just being kind of overzealous and emotional, very religious? You know, you'd expect a person like this to say this. But look, you read the Bible and you look at anywhere in the Bible where people made a decision to actually follow him. Eventually, if not immediately, eventually, you look at these people in the Bible, I think they saw the same thing Paul did. What do you think led the poor widow in Mark chapter 12 give up a penny to the offering box even though it was everything she had? What do you think led Mary to take her most expensive life's worth of perfume and just pour it all out on Jesus' feet? What do you think made those fishermen just leave their livelihoods, their friends and families, and follow Jesus, even though they knew it probably meant they were going to suffer and die? What makes some people today want to give up their whole life, comfortable life here in this country, and go to some foreign, poor, third world country and just spend their life there? Right? Let me be clear again. What I'm saying, what I'm not saying is this. Hey, this is how Paul was, and this is how people in the Bible were, so this is how you should be. So why aren't you? I mean, it might be a valid question, but that's not what my point is here. What I'm saying here, I think what Paul is saying here, he's trying to say, but this is how Jesus is. This is how Jesus is. Do you see it? One of the hardest jobs in the church, probably, apart from just coming up here and preaching, I'm going to say is leading worship, praise, praise. You know why? Because when you're on the praise team and you're leading praise team and you got these songs and all they talk about is how good God is, all they talk about is how wonderful he is, and then we're standing here singing and praising, you are the best thing, you are the most thing, you're worthy of our worship. You've got to do that, and you've got to mean that, but many times, we don't really mean it. We just sing it. But if you listen to some of the words, even the old songs, like, be thou my vision, you are my vision, nothing else satisfies only you, Lord, you are my best through day or by night, waking or sleeping, your presence, my life. Or... Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When I survey the wondrous cross. Right? That, that's what we sing about all the time. We think it's hard. I know. I know it. Okay, I know it's hard. We, we know it's hard. Just getting ourselves to church on time because we're managing our children, we're managing their activities, uh, we've got plans for families and vacations and, and even sports and, and, and even sometimes more serious things. Someone's sick and someone's hurt. Uh, and then you try to bring yourself to church and, and, you're, and you're trying to sing these songs that talk about worthy is the Lamb, worthy is Jesus Christ. But you're not feeling it all the time. You know what I'm saying? But still, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is Jesus Christ. Are you discontent? Are you living a life of discontent all the time? Then let me ask you, 
like Paul does. Who is Jesus to you? What do you really think of him? What have you learned from him? Can you be content with him? Because what I see here in Paul's contentment is is that his view of who Jesus was, what he saw in this person, Jesus Christ, led Paul to be able to say, all things I can endure with him who strengthens me. It was this... This estimation, this value, uh, this worth of Jesus about knowing him, having him, and it was his strength, whether he was in abundance or, or whether he was in need. What, he says to rejoice always. He says to be anxious and not worry. He says to experience the peace of God and to be content in every situation with him. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I, I know it's hard. Circumstances are tough. I don't, I'm not anywhere near Paul sometimes, many times. I, I confess that. How do I learn, like Paul, to experientially experience this kind of contentment and who Jesus is? Again, this is nothing new, right? The battle is getting what we understand or know in our heads down into our hearts so that it dominates all other circumstances. So that what we understand about Jesus Christ already gets down into our hearts and becomes like a Mount Everest towering over the molehills of our circumstances, however big, however great, however real, however heartbreaking they are. 2 Corinthians, Paul tells this church, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul knew what it was like to be in a difficult situation. He lived above them. How do you live above your circumstances? Because you're looking and you're seeing and you're setting your affections on things above and not on things on earth only. You're looking at Jesus Christ and you're saying, this is what I have in him. And you're able to say from the bottom of your heart, no matter what I have or don't have, no matter what I'm going through or don't want, you know, not experiencing, he's still better. And I know many of us are not there yet, okay? I understand that. And you don't come to Jesus thinking like this all the time. Sometimes you come to him for something else, but what happens eventually is that this else that he keeps providing or gives or one day provides is the reason that you just come for him. This affliction, he says, is not worthy to be compared, what? To the glory which is to come. It was his view of Christ and having him that he really believed made everything else worth it and able to be someone to endure, to experience, to go through, to be able to do all things. Let me leave you with a, a couple of, um, I guess, advice on, on 
what we need to think about before we do anything for God or wanting to experience God's strength and contentment in our lives. Um, before you just go out there and say, oh, I need to be more, if I want to be happy, I need to be more in love with Jesus. All right, all right, before you do that, let me just give you a couple things to think about. First, you cannot love an abstraction. You cannot love an abstraction. Christianity talks about some God who came to earth in the form of a person who did this work, died, and then, if you believe in this, for you, makes you precious to him. The fact that he would do this for anyone, it evokes love. But you cannot love an abstraction. God is not intellectual or theoretical or conceptual. It's personal and relational. And like any relationship, you have to work at it. Intimacy with someone doesn't just happen overnight sometimes. It takes work. And so the question here is this. Before you say, I want contentment, I want contentment, so I need to love God more. So what do you do? You need to work at it by getting this in your head down into your heart. How do you do this? You know the answer already. Don't, don't ask me how to grow. Don't ask me, like, like how, do, how do I become more faithful? How do become, you know the answer. You just don't do it. Bible study, prayer, worship, fellowship. Going to, the answers are all given in the Bible. And sometimes they work, and sometimes it doesn't seem like they work. But the promise is, you do these things, God will continue to work. We trust that. But you cannot love a concept. It's a person. And with any person, it takes work. Okay? Second, right? You want to be happy, you're going to pursue God. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, contrary to popular belief, I, I do have friends, okay? Uh, pastor friends. Uh, the only thing is that all my pastor friends, at least in the eyes of the world, are a lot more successful than I am. Right? There are a lot bigger churches and a lot more, you know, uh, resources and all these things, and it's fine. I just let them do what they want to do. It's great. I got a text from one of my uh, good friends, and he texts me, and he goes, you're my useless friend. That's what he says. You're my useless friend. And he says, I don't want you to be insulted by that. And I, I kind of was, but then... What could I expect, you know? And he told me that the reason he's saying this is because he's been reading these books by Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks, a popular author, he's not a Christian, wrote about, writes a lot about happiness and what people need. And one of the keys that Arthur Brooks says that people need to have happiness, guess what? Friends. They need friends. Did you know, according to one study, the average adult has roughly 16 people that they would classify as friends. According to a 2019 poll of 2,000 Americans, the average adult has about 16 people in their life who they would call friends. But of these 16, three of them are friends for life. Five of them are people they really, really like. But the other eight are not people they normally just hang out with one-on-one. -on -one. These other eight so-called friends, those are people who... They take turns with picking up kids from school. These are the, the other eight friends. They're friends that keep a stash of snacks in their desk drawer at work that sometimes shares it with you. The other eight of friends, these people, these friends they consider friends, are what the friends because they introduce you to valuable business contacts. 
You like them. You might even care about them well enough. Exchange superficial details about your lives. But the friendship for these last eight people in the people's lives are based on the person's utility. And, and, you know, presumably your utility to them. Arthur Brooks calls these people in your life, they're friends, but they're deal friends. Deal friends, that's what he says. Deal friends are friends you have that are instrumental to you in reaching some other goal, such as furthering your career, or making a dynamic in your life or a social dynamic easier. I'd probably say church friends might be this. Deal friends are that buddy who can help you get ahead in life, the friend who you, you need or want something. And it's not that you're using the person because the benefit's mutual. It's a camaraderie, if you will. But what Arthur Brooks says, and he quotes a lot of the old historical philosophers, and he says, deal friends, when you compare it to all other friends, are at the bottom rung of friendships. The highest friendship, which Brooks calls real friends. Not deal friends, real friends. And he gets this from Aristotle in the hierarchy, the perfect friendship. You know how you define the real friend, the perfect friendship? The real friend is defined by simply mutually valuing the other's existence. That's the real friend. So when my friend calls me useless friend, don't take it personal. He's saying I'm a real friend because there's nothing he wants from me and there's nothing I could get from him. So the reason that we're spending time together is simply for our existence. Real friend. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I've called you friends. Is it a deal, friend? What are you going to offer God? What are you going to give to God that he needs from you? He's called you a friend. Why? Not because you're so good. Not because you're so effective. He's called you a friend. Not because you're so productive or so moral or you worship so well. He's called you a friend simply because of you. For his glory. A real friend. Here's my point. If you want to be happy, you'll never be happy if you go to God just to make you happy. You can't go to God and say, if I love you, God, more, I'll be happier more. He's not a deal friend. He wants real friends. We grow and we learn when we go to God just for God. And the irony of this is this. When you pursue God just for God, the contentment, the joy, the, the peace is a byproduct of that. You can't love a concept. It's a person. It's relational. Number two, you go to God but if you want to do it, real friend, go to God for God. Sure, he'll provide. Sure, he has so much to offer. Sure, that might be the reasons that we come to him in the first place, but eventually, God for God. Jesus for Jesus. And what he, Paul finds is because of his view of who Jesus is, 
just having him brings the kind of contentment with it that no one else could give. This is why Paul writes for all of his letters to all the churches, and I'll end with this. This is what he writes at the end of his letter to the church in Ephesus. He prays for them, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you will have the strength to understand with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and to be filled with the fullness of God. That's his prayer for this church in Ephesus. That's his prayer for every church. And I think that's his prayer for our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your love, for your patience, your mercy. We are, all of us, different places when it comes to understanding our faith with you and, and the church and, and all this. And some of us, uh, we are just learning. Others of us, we've been there for so long. Wherever we are, at least the one thing that we come away with, at least, Lord, is not just all the things that we did and all the things that you know we were working on and all the things that we uh, planned and and all the people that we've met, but if anything, Lord, as good as all those things are, important as they might be, we come away knowing who you are and falling in love a little bit more, learning to know you, but learning to love you for you eventually, we pray, that that work would be in our hearts. When we find that kind of understanding of who you are, Lord, in whatever the situation or circumstance, we are not disappointed. We are not frustrated overly. We're not defeated. Because we never came to you to just simply give us what we think we needed. We came to you for you. And you are still a God who's in control. You are still a God who's loved us and promised to love us. You are still a God who's with us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ through the strength of his spirit. And you give us from that the very power to be able to endure, do, accomplish in any situation all things for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.